Now, this is a uh, this is a incident that is often referred to as the Jerusalem Council. All right, the apostles and the elders are gathered together to consider this matter, and the matter at hand is what to do about Gentiles who want to be Christians, because their initial instinct was to require them to be Jews and then convert to Christianity. And the apostles know instinctively that that doesn't make sense, and they get a lot of pushback from this new guy, the apostle Paul. And Paul, if anybody could make the case for them being Jews first, would have been the guy because he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, as he liked to call himself. And he's arguing against it. So now they've taken it up in the Jerusalem council, and this is what happened. They gathered together to consider the matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by mouth, by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. That last sentence is so profound, I want to read it again. Verse 10 and verse 11. Now, therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on their neck? That we disciples and our forefathers couldn't bear. <laughs> Why are you asking them to do that in order to be saved when we couldn't do it? And then he says, so therefore we need to believe in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now, with that in mind, keeping in mind this concept of grace and the apostles, the apostles' recognition that following rules never works, because sooner or later people fail to keep the law. Consider that Frank's premise in this book, Insurgents, is that the Christianity that we know here in America is corrupted. It's messed up. That the premise basically is that Christian faith in America, for in a large part, hasn't been very effective. <laughs> that it doesn't seem to make a big difference. And why? Is that that's that's one of the big uh, conclusions we draw from reading this book is that what we've created as our particular gospel hasn't really changed anything dramatically. I mean, I want you to think for a second about the song that the sons and daughters did 
Emily didn't say it, but I've told her a few times that's one of my very, very favorite songs. I love that song, How Deep the Father's Love. And I don't know about you, but when I'm singing my way through those verses, each verse successively or continues progressing along to the point where I realize the words I'm saying are staggering. They're staggering. When you were singing those words, did that occur to you? Did it stop you dead in your tracks because of the profundity of the words that you were hearing, that you were singing? You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a staggering message. I asked myself in the seconds of mental activity that were going on between the time I finished singing that song and listening to Connie's prayer and praying that prayer with her and getting up here. Somewhere in all of that, I asked myself a simple question. What could you give as an example of staggering news? I really did. I, I was thinking, what, what possibly could you tell people that would stop them dead in their tracks? What kind of information would a congregation or individuals in the congregation have to hear to be stopped and stunned into awe and silence? I, I don't know what the example is. Maybe you're thinking of some. Now, with that in mind, let's talk now why our gospel seems to be so ineffective. Well, it's ineffective because it isn't staggering enough. <laughs> the message that we proclaim as Christians doesn't really get a lot of attention from people. Because basically, when we are talking about what it means to be a Christian and on what basis we call ourselves Christian, we've gotten really fuzzy about it. We've gotten really fuzzy. It's, it's, the other day I went to the eye doctor because my uh, frames broke on my glasses and they got me a warranty replacement pair of frames and while they were changing out the lenses, they broke the replacement frames. And so I spent about an hour walking around fuzzy. I mean, like, if I take off my glasses right now, you all get better looking. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But I got to be honest with you, right now, I can't make out any of your faces. You're just blurry little heads. And then there you are, just like that. You come back into focus. And that's the way it is with the gospel that we've been proclaiming versus the true gospel. The transformative message that Jesus preached, that the apostles preached, was staggering. It, it stopped people dead in their tracks. It made them walk away going, holy smokes, what just happened? What did I just experience? Like, like, have you any sort of experience like that that you can draw on right now in your mind's eye? Staggering news. It may be staggeringly bad news that you think of 
because that's the kind of thing that usually makes our clocks stop. You know, when our wonderful, amazing Nathan was born, it was a moment like that. You know, uh, we were expecting our third child and uh, uh, fourth child. <laughs> it's not that. Anyway, I, I just remember everything was going fine. And we had every reason to think that this baby would be, you know, as awesome as the previous ones. And it turned out he was. But he had a little bit of a problem. And within a couple of pushes, we saw it. It was a birth defect, a serious birth defect. And in a second, time stopped, right? Now, I don't want to make this about that. I'm just trying really hard to find a way to get the point across that that's what the gospel should do when people hear it. Because I remember that that night, it was about 10 o'clock, and that was the recorded time of birth. And I don't remember time after that for a couple of days, you know, because something so staggering had happened in our lives that it just stopped time. People responded this way to the gospel when they heard it back in the day. They knew when Jesus spoke with authority, not like the religious elite, that they were hearing something incredibly new and different. In the same way, the apostles were proclaiming this gospel and people were saying, aren't these just those country bumpkin smelly fishermen from Galilee? Where's this coming from? And so that was the message that set the world on fire back in the first centuries. Why isn't it setting the world on fire today? Well, Frank has demonstrated in his book that there's probably a few reasons for that. The first and the most obvious reason the one that Christians today routinely deny is the supernatural extremes that exist in our world. See, there are a lot of things that happen in Bible stories that we have no frame of reference for, and so we dismiss them as if to say they don't really happen that way. That's just the only way they knew how to explain it back then. Well, I'm a literalist when it comes to the Bible, and I tend to take it as, as saying what it means and meaning what it says. Obviously, there are certain cultural and, and uh, historical contexts that have to be addressed, but, but principally, what we need to understand is, is that God's answer to the problem of sin, which was a problem generated by God's principal enemy, Satan, was Jesus Christ, okay? So, in other words, the good news of Jesus Christ is good news for us, but it was not exclusively for us. It's good news for all of creation. It's good news for all of the angelic and, and supernatural forces that are in 
complete loyalty and devotion to God. It's bad news to God's enemies. Because Jesus is a violent response from God to God's enemies. And that means basically that when sin came into the program back in Genesis and we heard that uh, the, the offspring of a woman would eventually crush the serpent's head, this is it. This is it. This is Jesus. This is the Christ who is the defeat, the one who will usher in the defeat and the destruction of God's enemies. Therefore, every time a believer accepts Jesus, every time a person is saved by God's grace through Christ. Every time a person receives Jesus as their Lord, as well as their Savior, it undermines the enemy. Every time, Jesus said every time a, a person, you know, repents of their sin and comes to faith in Christ, all of heaven rejoices. Well, what's implied in that is, and all of hell counts it as another chink in the armor, another brick removed from the fortress. You know, this business of being a Christian is so much more when we embrace the true gospel, but we don't for the most part. We don't understand that every newborn believer is another defeat for the enemy of God because Christ's victory is complete every time one of you or I or anyone in the future or the past accepts Christ's gift of salvation and devotes themselves in complete allegiance to Jesus. The good news, that's what gospel means, is that God has defeated sin and death and its author, God's principal adversary. And with that in mind, you can understand how throughout the generations since the apostles walked the earth, God's enemy has done everything conceivable to water down the gospel, to dilute it so that it's no longer effective. Here's a little piece of advice from a guy who became a pastor a second career and did something else before that. This cold weather is really tough on the fuel in your vehicles. Make sure you keep the tank full. The moisture will dilute your gas and your car's performance will suffer. Just thought I'd share that from my wealth of knowledge. But what does that mean? Well, it means that if the car's gasoline is diluted, the car doesn't run very well, and it sure doesn't come through in the clutch when you're trying to get up a hill and you need all the power you can get, right? This is what I mean. It's, it's the life of the believer. You have to embrace the high-octane, full force of the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to receive the utmost power that comes 
from living in faith and devotion to Jesus Christ. But instead, the enemy has given us this watered-down version, and they're basically, in Viola's book, he says basically there are these three Gospels. We've talked a lot about the real Gospel, but let's just talk about what often masquerades as the Gospel, even in churches like this one, even in families of faith all over the countryside. First, there's this Gospel of legalism. You may have heard of that. Legalism is a, is a criticism that's leveled against Christians a lot. And frankly, it's justified in some cases because Christians who are ultra-legalistic have a tendency to think that whatever set of rules works for them should work for everybody. You know, I can remember being in a very legalistic church serving as their pastor and trying to break that yoke and one of the things I said to people was, is the Bible's written to believers. You know that, right? <laughs> the New Testament is written to Christians. I mean, it's really easy to forget. <laughs> but you'd be amazed how many Christians spend an inordinate amount of energy using Christian doctrine selectively to criticize non-Christians. Well, here's good news. If you're not a Christian, you don't have to act like one. If, on the other hand, you call yourself a Christian, you might want to open up the New Testament and figure out how you're supposed to behave. Here's the other good news. You can't do just anything you want. That's not allowed either. You know, that's called libertinism. In, book, in Frank's book here. So he's basically said you got these two extremes. You got ultra-legalistic people and you've got ultra-libertine people. And both claim a gospel of Jesus Christ, but one asks way too much of you. Like Peter said, a yoke you couldn't bear, but somehow you think others should. <laughs> you know, I used to work with a guy back in that previous career selling truck stuff. And I would work with this guy, and he knew everything. He was like an encyclopedia. And back then, we didn't have computers and PDAs and things like that to look up everything. You had to actually know what you were doing. And I was learning, but there were still a lot of things I didn't know. And I would ask this guy, hey, I need a XYZ part for a 1957-something or another. And, and he'd just tell me where it was. And I'd say, couldn't you kind of show me how you get that answer. And you know what he told me once upon a time? I probably asked him that question 20 times a week. You know, why can't you just show me how to find it for myself? And he says, if I show you what I know, then I don't have any kind of edge over you and they pay you less than they pay me. <laughs> That's kind of like legalists saying you have to carry a burden that they don't necessarily want to carry. Oh, well, you got to pay your dues, right? Tell me you haven't heard that in your workplace. You got to pay your dues. You got to do your hard work. You got to suffer. Well, guess what? The gospel says, the good gospel, the true gospel says, no, you don't. You have to accept Christ as the one who paid your dues for you. 
who settled your debt. Remember the staggering verses of the song. Finally, there's this ultra-libertine view. And I think if you've been around here for the last couple of years, you already know what that looks like because we went out of our way to escape it. The libertine view basically says anything goes, nothing in particular is wrong, there are no rules, God's grace is for everybody, and that means you can do whatever you want. But we know instinctively that can't be true. And we also know that the depth of the Father's love for us can't be with no boundaries. When you love your child, you keep them within a protective sphere, don't you? You, you put them in the playpen when they're little and they might just wander down the stairs head over heels. You put them in uh, close proximity in certain places so that you can keep an eye on them. You want them to have freedom and liberty to enjoy life with all of its pleasures and vitality, but you also keep limits on it so that they're not hurt by their ignorance, by their recklessness. So deep love always includes boundaries. Here's something interesting. I was thinking about this on the way over, and I didn't realize how much we were already talking about it here at church this Sunday, but I was thinking about the 23rd Psalm. And I was thinking, he offers you grace that is like green pastures, where he wants you to frolic and play and live in joy. Having been set free, from sin and death. But I love this. I get comfort from his rod. In other words, he uses his rod, his shepherd's staff, to steer me away from danger and to keep me in his gentle, loving oversight. So the problem that we have with this libertine view on one end of the spectrum and this uh, extreme uh, legalism on the other end of the spectrum is, is that both of them take away the true nature of our Lord, our Father in heaven, whose love is so deep that he has created a staggeringly inconceivable act of mercy that should drive us completely to our knees. Gospel, the gospel, is good news. And everybody who hears it should know that they've just heard the greatest good news that there could ever be. And what are we doing if not sharing that good news? Ted invited you to take this course and, and opportunity to learn how to share your faith. My, my heart's desire is that maybe today this is prompting you somehow to have the desire to fill people with good 
news, staggeringly good news, stunning good news, but we have to reconcile first with what we've embraced and why. So in the sermon notes, there are lots of details that I haven't included in my speaking today, but there are a couple of questions I'd like you to ask yourself. Do you recognize any legalistic tendencies in yourself? And there are a few ways you can look at that. You know, if you don't think you're doing enough to make God happy, you might be legalistic. You might be a little quick to judge others for not living the way you can't live either. <laughs> and uh, you might be libertine. Ask yourself if being just like everybody else you know doesn't bother you. If the same forms of entertainment and the same kind of language they use, if the same sort of... Uh, just general disregard for sacred things. You know, if you have that tendency, what's up with that? You know, um, I think what you'll find, as most people do, is that you're on a spectrum where you have this term legalism on one end and you have this libertinism on the other. And I think we kind of drift back and forth on it, don't we? Most of us are people who want to be legalistic when it suits us, and we want to be libertine when it suits us, because what we're really wanting is not to have anybody telling us what to do or judging everything we do. Most of us are that way. The true gospel will drive you to a moment to a place in your life where you say, Father in heaven, judge me. Just get it over with now. I already know judgment's inevitable, so just do it now. And now that I know how you have judged me, because he's judged you guilty, you know. That's a given. I am stunned beyond words that you have forgiven me. And I am astonished when I imagine looking into the eyes of the one through whom you gave me this grace. How deep the Father's love for us. So far beyond measure. The true gospel should have stunned you a long time ago and left you stunned every time you think about it. And it has shaped your life so that you've never been the same since. But if you've been embracing a gospel that was, well, frankly, something that even the apostles were wrestling with as they tried to figure out how to go forward. And they put it right there in the Bible for us to study. So we can learn from their example. It's pretty profound. I invite you to really think about that. Spend some time in deep prayer and contemplation. 
and make sure that you're clear on which gospel saves your soul. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Please bless your people. Infuse them with your Holy Spirit in a new and profound way and let, and let this truth permeate their being. As always, Lord, where this vessel of yours has been weak and undermined, I pray that you have imparted no less than your heart and mind to the folks for the sake of their hearts and minds, I pray. Amen. Amen.